So Tom, you were Devin's boss right out of grad school. And so I would like to hear what the worst thing about working with Devin was. <laughs> what? I don't know. I can't think of anything, actually. I was perfect, right, Tom? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't always listen to me when she should have, but... That's fair. Yeah. I'm a willful woman. Yeah. She's doing all right. Yeah. Yeah, Tyler. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. Tyler, have you ever watched a medical drama on TV? Uh, yes, of course I have. <laughs> I think everybody has. I think I've watched all of them. Maybe that's too much to say, but just about all of them because I kind of love them. Do you have a favorite one? I mean, I don't know if I have a favorite one. I have a favorite 20. <laughs> and I like them not because I think they're true to real life. In fact, I think they're not true to real life. And people are always asking me, they probably ask you too, is it like Grey's Anatomy? Is it like ER? Is it like that? And, and what do you say to them? No, it's not. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because we are neither one of us physicians or you know, clinicians in kind of the, like as a traditional healthcare provider, but we are entirely immersed in that world. And so we get to see, see it from the inside. And one of the worst things about going to law school is that going to law school ruined law and order for me. I can't watch law and order anymore because it's just so ridiculous, right? And I, I feel like medical dramas are probably similar in that way. If you if you have the training, it's unwatchable. Well, maybe, although I still watch them and I think a lot of um, doctors I know will still watch the shows, but what do you think are the biggest misperceptions that people might have about hospitals, about medicine from watching those shows? There's a couple that jump out to me. I think... One is the amount of random hooking up that nurses and doctors and doctors and doctors do in like the the call rooms and the corridors late at night. I've never run across that. Maybe I'm just hanging out in the wrong corridors. I think another one that is portrayed a lot that I think is utterly ridiculous is CPR and how effective it is, but also when people just like pop up and they're awake and... They're running around. And so I think about like, you know, on the TV show 24, right? With Jack Bauer saving the world from terrorists. I can't count how many times he was like, you know, flatlined and then resuscitated. And then within 30 seconds, he's up aiming a gun and protecting people and saving the world. Yeah, because you and I both have seen CPR happen. Not only do they not jump up, right? We're like breaking ribs. It's brutal on the human body. No one's jumping up and running a marathon after they get CPR. And so I think we'll talk about that in our episode today with Tom. The other one that always gets me, and I, I never thought about this before, but a friend of mine who's an occupational therapist pointed out to me that in a lot of shows, like in Grey's Anatomy, they're all surgeons, right? But they're also doing physical therapy with their patients after the surgery, which is ludicrous. The surgeons don't hang around and then help you learn how to walk. 
after they give you surgery. That's just not how it happens. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have the time or even the training or specialization to to do all of the different roles that they're portrayed on TV as, as doing. It's sort of like there isn't a medical team. It's just physicians doing all the work. And of course, that's not true. Yeah, it's like every healthcare profession is condensed down into one very young, very attractive physician. Yeah, I will say bioethicists are never portrayed in those shows. But if they were, and they were very, very good looking, that seems like it would be accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think so too. We're pleased today to welcome Professor Tom Tomlinson. Tom is the longtime director for the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences at Michigan State University in the College for Human Medicine and recently retired from that position. But he continues to be the chair of the Ethics Committee at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan. Welcome, Tom. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I should mention that Tom was my boss and mentor for many years at Michigan State. And it is very nice to see you and sad that we're not in the same room together right now. No, I know. But you're doing great, so. Thanks. (laughs) So Tom, we start all of our interviews off the same way, asking, do you consider yourself a bioethicist? I consider myself a bioethicist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm a bioethicist. I'm just not sure what that means. There are so many things that count as ethical questions connected with medicine and biomedical science and public health. And I mean, again, the, the list goes on and on and on. So there's just setting the boundaries for what bioethics is, let alone a bioethicist. It's pretty hard. So what you're saying is that insofar as there is such a thing as a bioethicist, you are that thing. I'm somewhere in there, yeah. Tom, how did you get into bioethics? I mean, a lot of people that we've talked to have had very different stories about how they became aware of it and then interested in it and then actually found a job in it. So what's your story? How did you get here? Well, when I was discharged from the army in 1970, I was, I had to finish my bachelor's degree because my undergraduate career was a utter disaster. And I think I graduated by the skin of my teeth with a 2.01 average (laughs) giving hope to students everywhere go on so there's a story there so deborah my wife was taking a class uh, with a philosopher named martin benjamin and she said you have to come hear this guy and sit in on his class because i was sort of casting around for something for what i was going to do next and so i did and it was it was an ethics class. It wasn't a bioethics class, but it was an ethics class. And I was just really, really hooked. And I, I think it's temperamental. I've always been a bit of a skeptic, so I like asking questions. Uh, my high school biology teacher called me Doubting Thomas. This was back in the days when you could make a religious reference like that in a public high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good old days. Yeah, that's true. So so anyway, I got I got hooked, and one thing led to another. I end up applying and getting accepted conditionally to the master's program in philosophy at Michigan State University. And then that was, that was kind of a long process, and trying to decide what to do for a dissertation, I was interested in talking about or thinking about methods in ethics uh, and, and principles in particular, of which I was kind of skeptical and still am. And 
I wanted to use bioethical questions as a platform or context for talking about some of those things. The other thing that happened was when I came back to to finish my do my PhD work, the founding dean of the College of Human Medicine had started something called the Medical Humanities Program. And so when I came back then in 1981, I became the first graduate student for the Medical Humanities Program. And so that was another way in which I sort of got in on the ground floor of the bioethics movement or whatever you might want to call it way back when. That's kind of my story. So when you were at Michigan State, you taught mostly medical students or philosophy students or undergrads? Well, so when I was, when I was teaching in the earlier days at Michigan State, I was teaching uh, undergraduates, medical students, nursing students, veterinary students, graduate philosophy students. Just, just what I was going to be teaching in any different, given semester varied. And I helped develop some of the first ethics courses in the medical school. And same for veterinary school and nursing too. So I got a lot of experience taking a whole lot of different students, many of whom had no, not the slightest interest in philosophy. So I had to learn somehow how to make it engaging for them and help them appreciate how important it would be for them to do, develop some of those skills. Don't know how successful I was at convincing them, but I gave it a try. I think quite convincing from many of the students that I've talked to that you have had over the years? I've been really fortunate. I think, especially about my graduate students that I, dissertations I mentored, they've been very successful. So I'm kind of proud of that. Well, Tom, so you have done just about everything, taught every kind of student, and you've also done clinical ethics work, meaning you've worked in the hospitals, you're currently chair of an ethics committee. So you've seen a lot on the ground as well. So we wanted to today do a special edition of the podcast called Bioethics Mythbusters Edition, because we think that as bioethicists, who all three of us have worked in hospitals before, there's a lot of misconceptions about what really happens in a hospital. So we're going to educate all of our listeners on misconceptions they might have that we're going to correct right now with your expertise. Okay, so the first one is, if you go to the hospital, they'll often ask you if you want to be DNR, meaning do not resuscitate. So if your heart were to stop, should we resuscitate you? And a lot of people will say, of course I want that. Or they'll never ask because they'll just assume that you want that, right? Why wouldn't you want the hospital team to try to restart your heart if it were to stop? I mean, if it stops, that means you're dead, right? So it seems natural that we should always try to restart people's hearts if they were to stop. So why might not that be the case? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's probably universal practice that when someone comes into the hospital, either they, if they're an adult and have the capacity to make their own decisions, or it's a family member or someone else representing the patient is going to be asked because they have to be asked. If your heart were to stop, do you want us to try to start it again, to resuscitate it? And the common sense answer is, well, sure. (laughs) Because if it stays stopped, I'm dead as a doornail. So yeah, please. And they're asked that question. They have to be asked that question because if if they don't have an answer, the default is full code. So if somebody comes in the hospital and they're in cardiac arrest, they're going to be resuscitated or they're going to attempt resuscitation regardless. If you don't ask, 
then you're going to give them the full court press uh, if their heart stops. And it doesn't much matter what the prospects are for their survival. The record of CPR is pretty dismal. So let's say you drop, you know, you drop to the floor at your local store and you know, they might try putting the paddles on you and they might try doing the chest compressions and you know, and the, you know, basic life support stuff. The chances of that working are almost zero. Wait a second. I've seen a lot of TV and I think it works almost every time. So what you're saying is that it doesn't? Yeah, we've seen Baywatch. It always works, right, Tom? That's right. It doesn't. So something I'm interested in is actually trying to develop a, a CPR decision aid for our patients and families at Sparrow. And we're borrowing some stuff that Mayo Clinic uses. And they have these, these nice little sort of graphics that have 100 dots on them. And that shows you by how many dots they're colored in what the chances are of survival, of leaving the hospital if you have a cardiac arrest, and how that compares to your chances on TV. So the chances are on TV are something like three quarters of people who get resuscitated. I don't know how they gathered this evidence, by the way, but anyway. That's a fun research project, though. <laughs> a lot of TV watching. A lot of TV watching. <laughs> the three quarters of the people who get a CPR in the hospital on TV get up and walk out. And interestingly, Sparrow Hospital itself made big, a big, big deal publicly about this guy who came in, who had all kinds of advanced conditions, serious conditions. The prospects for his survival were really, really small. He got resuscitated anyway, and he survived and left the hospital. And that was Sparrow's miracle. So they touted this miracle that got performed at Sparrow Hospital. And in my view, they're shooting themselves in the foot because now they're, now they're going to have a very hard time counteracting people's impression or understanding of how well CPR works when, in fact, it doesn't. Especially if you're, as you get older, like my age, as you have you know, more and more uh, serious health conditions, underlying health conditions, your chances of survival are small. And if you're elderly and you have an underlying condition, your chance of survival to leave the hospital is about one or 2%. Yeah, I was just looking this up, Tom. So I saw, so for people in general in an acute care setting, it's somewhere between 17% and 25% who get CPR will survive to discharge. And that's everybody, right? So that's young people, that's old people. But when you get older or if you have a serious medical condition, that drops pretty dramatically. So that seems like the inverse of of the perception that 75% of people get up and walk out of the hospital. Yeah, that's right. And what's strange about the arrangement is that, you know, if your chances of survival or improvement to be discharged for being put on dialysis were very, very small, the physician probably wouldn't recommend dialysis. I mean, to get on dialysis, somebody has to order dialysis. The physician has to write an order that says, put this patient on dialysis. To get CPR, Nobody has to write an order to get CPR. That's what automatically happens to you unless you have a DNR order. So it's the only medical treatment that you have to write an order not to provide. That's a, it's a really interesting situation that you have to basically opt out of this treatment that has very low success rate. So that kind of brings us to a, so the second, the second myth that we wanted to talk about is along the same lines but it is about advanced directives. 
So can you briefly explain what an advanced directive is and why somebody would have them or might not have one? Yeah, sure. So it's required by federal law that when you go into a hospital, um, you're going to be asked whether you have an advanced directive. And an advanced directive is a document, legal document, in which I can do one or both of two things. The first thing I can do, I can name somebody who I authorize to make medical decisions for me when I'm no longer able to. If I was especially risk-taking, I could name Tyler. Oh, boy. <laughs> as my surrogate decision maker, with my durable power of attorney, I'm not going to go into all that stuff, what that means. But anyway give you that authority, and it would be legal authority that you would have to make decisions for me uh, on my behalf when I'm no longer able to. That's one thing I can do. The other thing that people do also alongside that commonly, although they don't have to, is they document in their durable power of attorney treatments that they do want or they don't want. More typically, they're going to say something like, you know, if I'm terminally ill, I don't want to, I don't want to get resuscitated if my heart stops, or I don't want to be put, if I'm terminally ill, I don't want to be put on a ventilator or things of that kind. Or interestingly, and sometimes disturbingly in the work I do at Sparrow, they may say, if I'm terminally ill, I do want to be resuscitated if my heart stops. Or yes, I do want to be on that ventilator, please, because I want to live as long as possible, even though I'm not going to survive. So those two things I can do with my advanced directive, I can name someone to be my surrogate decision maker, and I can also leave evidence of what I myself would want in the hope that the people at the receiving end would honor those wishes. So I think the myth that I hear or that we perpetuate actually in our field is that advanced care planning is great. That's not the myth. It is great. You should have some advanced care planning. You should think about what you're going to want at the end of your life or what you would want if you could no longer make decisions for yourself. These are important things to think about. But I think there is this idea that if you have an advanced directive, that will solve all the problems that are often created in end-of-life care. So as long as you pick somebody who can make decisions for you, and if you tell them what you want, you're going to get it, and then you either die the way you want or you continue to live because that's what you wanted. Is that true? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but look, there have been a lot of studies that people have done to look at what the concordance is, that is the level of agreement, between the person I name to be my durable power of attorney and me. When we're presented with various scenarios, they'd ask the individual who executed this document, what would you want? And then they turn around and they ask the person that I had named, what would he want? And the concordance between the two is very poor. And as, as a matter of fact, I did one of those studies back in the late 80s or early 90s. I think it was funded by the Retirement Research Foundation. And that's what we found, is that there was just very little concordance or disturbing degree of lack of concordance between the patient and their name surrogate with regard to what the patient would want. And in a way, this is not surprising. You know, for one thing, we don't talk about these things very often. And of course, patients are encouraged to have the conversation with their loved ones and so on and so forth and say, here's, here's what I want and here's what I don't want. But when it comes time, the loved ones may have competing 
interest is the wrong word. Competing affections might be the better word. On the one hand, they may remember what that conversation was and what the patient would really want. But on the other hand, they don't want to see their loved one die. And they don't want to be the instruments, if you will, or the agents of an earlier death when they authorize that DNR order or they say, yeah, don't put them on the ventilator, even though they know that patient would live, would live a little while longer. And who knows, there's always those miracles uh, that happen that like the one that Sparrow had. And there are things pulling people in different families in particular, pulling them in different directions from what the patient herself would want. And just thinking for a minute about what the patient herself would want, she herself may, may not want her family to be in distress, may want her family to make the decision that makes them comfortable. And again, there is some empirical evidence of, of this mixed emotions or mixed motivations among family members. So having an advanced directive and having the, the talk with your family is good. It's probably better than doing nothing, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to end up getting what you want. And even what you want, as I just pointed out, is kind of complicated. Okay, myth number three is that if you go into hospice or if you use palliative care, that means that the medical team is no longer going to treat you. Is that the case? I mean, this is, you know, this is the kind of thing that the palliative care people have to address all the time. I can make myself DNR, but still want to be treated because DNR is a decision that applies only if I have a heart attack. If before that, there are things that can be done that reduce the chances of my having a heart attack, well, then of course I would want those things and they should be recommended to me. So DNR, as people say, doesn't mean don't treat. And palliative care people really rankle at the idea that the patient has decided that they don't want to be treated and therefore palliative care is going to come in because palliative care is treatment. But the goal of the treatment is different. It's not to sustain the patient's life as long as medically possible. It's to make what's left of their life as comfortable as possible. The interesting twist here is that there's some evidence that making people more comfortable, they live longer. And there is some of this evidence from patients with advanced cancer, for example, that if you add palliative care, or even maybe in some ways substitute palliative care for the aggressive chemotherapy they're getting, they live longer. Yeah, that shouldn't surprise us, right? It does. It surprises a lot of people, of course, that switching over to sort of comfort measures instead of aggressive measures would make your life longer. But really, a lot of aggressive measures might be the thing that ends your life sooner because they're painful and they're aggressive. It's in the name. Being really comfortable. So not only do you, are you comfortable, hopefully, so we're reducing your pain, we're not giving you treatments that hurt you, and you're living longer. So really, that's sort of a win-win. So everybody should welcome palliative care and eventually hospice because hospice does the same thing. There's studies that show that being in hospice helps you to live longer at the end of your life as well. As long as you get into the program soon. Unfortunately, most people get into the program days before they die, so they don't get the, all the benefits of hospice. Yeah, and one of the reasons they end up in the program days before they die is because their physician doesn't admit them until they're dying. So this is especially true of oncologists who will be urging their patient to take you know, yet one more experimental therapeutic regimen for their cancer as their condition is deteriorating. And finally, I mean, they, they've, they've not been offered palliative care, or if they have, they haven't been able to resist the, the siren call of yet one more 
advanced innovative cancer therapy. So they end up dying in the hospital rather than dying comfortably at home. Tom, just to kind of wrap up, what what are some questions or topics or controversies do you see that are in the future for bioethics? What are some things that we can anticipate? I don't have a synoptic view of the field, so it's kind of hard for me to say. I think all the, the adaptive biotechnologies, the you know the robotics, the brain implants, all those kinds of things, and that are emerging or create some challenges. Although I'm not sure they're all going to be new challenges uh, in the field. I think that, and this is something I'm actually interested in and fitfully doing some work on, is that we are uncovering what the biological causes are of aging. And there's the prospect that we can stop aging, or some people say even reverse aging. But that raises the question, would that be a good thing? Maybe great for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure it'd be great for me. Would it be a good thing or not? And I think that's, that's a pretty hard question because the consequences of the adoption of such a technology are profound and you might not end up getting what you wanted. There's a really great book by Simone de Beauvoir that I'd never read before, but was recommended to me called All Men Are Mortal. And it's about a man, about a single man, in fact, was immortal. It reveals a lot about what happens when you live too long and you've seen too much. And it's the same old, same old, same old over and over and over again. So life becomes fruitless. Your achievements dissipate and they're gone. Of course, that's true for all of us. You know, 10 years after we're dead, most people won't even remember who we are. (laughs) So Tom, I, I think that that was just the most crystal clear demonstration that you are a bioethicist because you can take any conversation and turn it dark and morbid and depressing. (laughs) Well, Tom, I remember when I worked for you, you used to always say about bioethics that everything that's old is new again. And I think that's really true. So even though these new technologies, you know, even the can we reverse aging debate really harkens back to an ancient debate about whether it would be good to be immortal or not. And so in some ways, even though technology is progressing so quickly and we always have to keep up with the newest thing, the questions are old and they continue to resurface again and again. Yeah, let me say something about that, because I think people sometimes say, well, you know, bioethics doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's just the same old questions over and over and over again, and no one has the answers yet. So it's not like science where we're getting the answers all the time. But that's how it needs to be, because people can't look back and say, oh, well, you know what Tom Thomason said back in 1995? We should do that. If they said that, be irresponsible. They have responsibility to make their own decisions. The, the nature of the problems isn't going to change all that much, but every generation has to decide for itself what it thinks it should do. For me, that's why bioethical questions are recurring. It's because they need to recur. All of us is responsible for his or her own choices, no matter what generation you're in. And each new generation has to decide those old questions for itself. It may make the same decision. It may say, yeah, advanced directives are crap. And so there's no progress, but progress is not the only thing that's important. Responsibility is also very, very important. Yeah, I love that. Well, thanks, Tom, for sharing all of your wisdom, busting all those myths. I hope that you live forever, but if you don't want to, 
I'll respect your decision. Just please write it down in some sort of legal document for me. (laughs) Okay, sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So here's another question. How many different healthcare professions have you been mistaken for as you're like doing your job as a clinical ethicist? Mm. Yeah, I've often actually been asked if I was a family member or like the daughter or granddaughter of the patient. People don't always see the name tag. And so sometimes people think that I am somehow related to the patient if I'm there talking to them. Mm -hmm. There was for probably about six months in one of the ICUs that I work with, there was a nursing director thought I was the IT guy. And I... (laughs) And, and I didn't realize that in like how she was mistaking me every time until finally I was walking through and she said, oh, Tyler, come here. And she had a question about the electronic medical record. She couldn't access something. And I just stopped, stopped for a second, looked at her and said, who do you think that I am? Like, what do you, what job do you think I do? And she's like, oh, I thought you were our IT guy. It's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> that is too funny. <laughs> yeah, but it was a good six months that she thought I was the unit's IT representative, so... Not the case.